The return of Doug Messenger is here. It's been one year since you were last in the studio and made such an impression on the show, on the fans, on the listeners. I appreciate you so much for coming back. And there's been new developments that we're going to get into. But first things first, <laughs> oh my we God. put up 50 eruption Van Halen work orders signed by Don Landy. They're at sunsetsoundstore.com. Use discount code Doug10. And grab one of these 50 because it'll be gone in two seconds. This is a perfect gift for Christmas. It's the actual work order of Eruption, which was only called Guitar Solo then. But yes. It's great for a collector, great for an office studio. Studio One. Studio One. But Ted, Ted, Ted Templeman told me it was Studio Two, but I think he's mistaken. Anyhow, back to you. How are you doing, studio Doug Messenger? One. I'm fine today. <laughs> Always happy to be at Sunset Sound. Yes. Because uh, I've been around this place since the si late 60s. Early 70s when Bill Robinson was the manager. Yeah, and Bill Robinson was the manager at Capitol, came over here, and actually helped design our echo chambers. Did you know that? I did not know that. That's what we're here to well, do is learn. That. I'm here to learn. I know. I am too. I mean, everybody, we're doing this together. You know, we kind of want to document this stuff, investigate, and really get to the bottom of these stories because people can say we're crazy or obsessed, but what do we care it's a hobby. It's the greatest music ever. It needs it to is. be. I want to know what color T-shirt Eddie was wearing when he was. <laughs> oh, my God. You know. So we're going to get to a lot of things. We're going to talk about the Unchained battle, which you were here for with Eddie Van Halen, Don Landy, Ted Templeman, where we went and we gave a studio tour earlier. We'll put that in this interview. But I talked to you on the phone two weeks ago, and you said, I've got some information, a cool talking point about Bill Church. Now, can you explain who Bill Church was? Bill Church is a bass player who was mixed into the Van Halen brew as, as the stew was being put together. Uh, a lot of accidental stuff or can, uh, from the beginning. Uh, he was a, a bass player in a group called Sawbuck, and Ronnie Montrose was the guitar player in that group, and they had a, a front man named Mojo Collins, pretty cool name. Yeah. I don't know whatever happened to him, but I heard a couple of Sawbuck things. It, it didn't have the Montrose touch at all. He was just a guitar player there, and he and Church quit to play on the Tupelo Honey record with Van Morrison. Produced by Ted Templeman. Produced by Ted Templeman. Uh, I, I think that because Sawbuck was in Marin County, that Van had met Ronnie or seen him. Yeah. I think that's how it happened. And Ted did a very good job producing that record. But I have to give equal time to Ronnie Montrose because the guitar playing on that and the arranging, uh, a lot of it was... From Ronnie. Wow. I wasn't there, but I remember hearing Church talk about it when I met Church. And Bill Church, bass players never get their get what they should get. Recognition. Uh, but a great bass player makes a band better, and people don't realize it. What? Just as John Paul Jones and Led Zeppelin. Listen to the bass on what what is and should never be. That is a bass part you can't equal. Yeah. And Church was a guy who in a subtle, very American way would do that with anything he played. 
uh, I'll give, listen to Tupelo Honey, listen to the bass. St. Dominic's preview record, he's on that with Van, too. Which you're uh, on. Although I, um, I was on, Ronnie had left to go to play with Edgar Winter, where they did Frankenstein and uh, Free Ride, two big hits. And then Church rejoined Ronnie when they formed Montrose. And Montrose was the model for Eddie Van Halen. That he had, that band was what Eddie wanted to have for him, for his own band with his brother. And so I'm going to explain a little more about Church. But if you listen to Church on St. Dominic's Preview, take a song. There's a little almost Vegas-like song on there called uh, I Will Be There. Listen to the bass line in that thing. It's a little jazz song. It had been written as a triadic thing. Van had written it on a piano. Yeah. And I said, Van, this, I had heard it once up at his little studio he was putting together up at the house at 89 Spring Lane, which Jerry Heller got wrong in his book. But we Jerry can talk Heller about that, that too. Jerry Heller had something to do with Van Morrison, I'll tell you in a minute. Wow. I knew him very well. And uh, famous NWA producer, but he also produced uh, rock and roll mainstream pop artists too, yeah. back in the day. He was a very bright man, real nice guy to be around, and tough as tough can be when he had to be. I'd imagine if he was managing NWA. Yes, he was. <laughs> but he, continue, please. With the so, in any event, go and listen just for as an example to "I Will Be There" and listen to the bass line. It's a very melodic bass line that you might almost attribute to Paul McCartney because McCartney was a bass player who didn't just just play the roots at the right moments. He played lines that were in themselves melodic and good, and Church can do that too. And on that song, Church didn't do what most— if we had had Leroy Vinegar or Ron Carter or one of the top jazz bass players— they would not have done I Will Be There as, Bill, as well as Bill Church did. They would have done walking bass lines, and that would have been it. But Church knew what to do. So anyway, move ahead to Montrose. Montrose is the, is the uh, model for Eddie Van Halen in his head when he's a kid, just trying to think about what he wants to do. And uh, I think I'll jump to the end on that for a second here. Cool talking point, though. It was your... Amplifier, your Marshall That's what I'm about to talk about. lead, which is, I think we might have discussed it on the other one, because it's, oh, Doug, someone's calling you. Is it Bill Church? But that's the, your Marshall that Ronnie Montrose yeah. is playing on Rock Candy, on Rock which Candy. is recorded here at Sunset well, Sound. But in reading Ted's book, Ted Templeman's book recently, yeah. I saw that Eddie had, when they got to the point of doing the first Van Halen album, Eddie had asked Ted, and it's in Ted's book, could we get the amp that Ronnie Montrose used on Rock Candy? Little, little did they figure out that it was my Marshall that I had lent to the Montrose project through Steve Brandon, who was our roadie in, with Van Morrison and had been uh, one of the guys who built the, the Grateful Dead monster PA system, the first monster system ever. And Steve Brandon had called me from Sunset Sound to say, we're down here with Ronnie. I knew Ronnie. I had met him a few times 
Uh, I have a pretty salty story about him. I don't know if I should tell it. Sure. Why? It's <laughs> well, documenting. when I met Ronnie Church, Bill Church and I got along great. When I joined Van, he was the nicest guy in the band. The first day I was there, he invited me to come up to his house and he cooked dinner for me. Church is a great guy. And uh, and he lived up in Sonoma County, if I remember, near Santa Rosa. Is this the one with Ronnie's wife? Yeah. <laughs> you want to hear it? Yeah, I mean, I know what you're saying, but go. I yeah. don't know if anyone else knows. Church called me one day and he said, uh, I told him that I really liked the guitar parts on Like a Cannonball and Wild Nights and the things that Ronnie had done for Van, and he said, oh, well, let's go see Ronnie, and he lived in Fairfax, too, up near Van's place. Van was at 89 Spring Lane, and uh, we went to see Ronnie, and he was about to go on the road with Edgar Winter, and uh, Ronnie, at one point, Ronnie turned to me and, and church. He says, you know, when I'm gone, I don't want my wife screwing around with strangers, so if you guys want to partake Go ahead. I couldn't believe it. I said, I said, Montrose, you're nuts. Of course, Church and I wouldn't do that. Oh, my. <laughs> Ronnie offered his wife as if he had the right to, which hey. he didn't, you know. Ronnie was a character. Yeah, so, I'm but sure anyways, he was kidding. So what happened Hopefully. next with Church says he was with Van Morrison. We did St. Dominic's Preview. He played on five of the seven songs. Two songs were really from the... Uh, the two Blow Honey sessions. Yeah. Uh, Almost Independence Day and uh, Listen to the Lion. They were already done before we did the rest of the record. Um, at some point, I'll, if you want to know how, how, say, Jackie Wilson said was put together, I can well, explain. We'll talk it. about some van stuff. Yeah. Later. So, anyway, Church was there. Ronnie was off with Edgar Winter. And then Church. Um, uh, they they did the Montrose record, Sammy Hagar as the lead singer, and uh, a lot of people don't know. Um, I mean, if you're a fan of Montrose or Van Halen, but Sammy Hagar was in Montrose. Yes, he was the lead singer. Yes, and Montrose was on Warner Brothers. Ted Templeman produced them. Yes, and they had success. Nothing Some, like Van Halen, but when. When Ted Templeman got to Van Halen, he knew exactly what he wanted to do with them because they were similar yes, to Montrose, good. and he wanted to get them in singles territory, Van Halen. Agreed. That's a great point. Yes. And uh, Montrose, on the Montrose record, there were some great songs, but Rock Candy is the one that everybody talks about because of two things, the drum sound and the guitar sound. And in Ted's book, he mentions that Eddie asked him, can we get that amp? Well, apparently Ted forgot how they had gotten that amp through Steve Brandon, you know, who, yeah. who was a friend of Church's, and, and uh, I guess he knew Ronnie, too. He was a Bay Area guy. And uh, little did they know that that was my Marshall. Uh, I didn't get to use it a lot in the early days of the 70s because the bands out here weren't into Marshalls yet. You know, smaller amps, clubs, and stuff like that. But... Um, Later on, after Van Halen was well known, I sold that Marshall to guess whom? Eddie Van Halen. I didn't know that. We, yes. didn't, we didn't discuss that last no, time. We so, didn't. What, so Eddie he Van came Halen over, owned the 100? With 100 watt amps. He, he didn't even know it, and I didn't even mention it because I didn't know that Ted had been, had, Eddie, had asked Ted, could you find that amp? 
I found that out recently, a few weeks ago, when I was reading Ted's book. Oh. That, that Eddie had said, hey, Ted, could we get that? I'd like to hear that amp. Not This is before Eddie knew that his amp was amazing. His yeah. amp was, was we know so it. So he's a Montrose fan. He wants that sound on Rock Candy, the amp from that, which was yeah. your amp. They yes. couldn't find you. Yet, or, uh, Ted without, didn't remember, but hold on one second. Ted wanted to find you, couldn't. So then what? where did they get an amp? They just used no, Eddie's? Ted, Ted didn't try to find me. He didn't even know who, where it had okay. come from. And I just learned this a few weeks ago, but uh, I said, my God, that's the amp that I sold to Eddie somewhere after they did Fair Warning. Oh, so he bought an amp from me. And I remember running into him one day at the supermarket. I told you that story. And he, I said, how do you like my Marshall? He says, it's a little too clean for me. Did he come buy it from you personally or yes, was there a middleman? They came to my apartment. Okay. In those so days, like eighty three, kind of maybe eighty two, somewhere kinda. in there. Yeah. And he came to my apartment, seventy nine thirty four Fountain Avenue. He wanted Hollywood. to track down that amp. So he was even when he was in here in seventy seven, seventy eight. No, but he didn't know that that had been the the amp on on Rock Candy, and I never mentioned it to him. Well, why did he buy the your amp then? Because I had told him I have a Marshall that I'm not using right now. Do you want it? Oh my it gosh! Total, so then it happened to be the one he wanted. It just anyways. happened to be the one. That had been used on Rock Candy. That's the universe. For now, you. the story I heard about the recording of, of Rock Candy right here in this room, I think. No, it was in one. Oh, Greg Renoff. We, Greg Renoff, the famous Ted Templeman author, we had a bet, and I said it was Studio Two because you told me it was Studio Two, but now Greg said you're wrong. Studio One that Rock Candy was done in. It might it might have been Rock Candy. I think some of the rest of it was done here, but Thank Rock you, Candy <laughs> was done there. And the story that I heard was that Ted and Landy didn't know what to do with an amp that was that loud, right? People, people hadn't played them. People had super reverbs and twins and occasionally a, a small Marshall. And what they did, this is the story I heard, they aimed the amp at the glass door that's at the back of the, of the room, mm -hmm. of the main room, they aimed the amp at it from about, maybe we're this far from that door, and then they put a, a microphone, a tube mic, and I think they told him, I don't remember who told me this, so this could be all apocryphal. This could be crap, but I think it's true, because it sounds right. They put a tube mic behind the, 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 the cabinet, and it was what you hear on the record, is the amp bouncing back off the glass. Wow. They didn't put an amp, a mic right in front of it. Most condenser mics don't work well right up against a Marshall. You need an SM57 or a 421 Sennheiser. That'll, that'll do it, you know, or an SM7. But in, in any case, when I hear that record, I can hear that there's a room to it. And I, so I believe that the story is true that the mic was behind the amp, behind the cabinet, getting the guitar off the wall. Wow, we yeah. need to go try that. Yeah, <laughs> you should get a good Marshall, but it has to be an old one Yeah, that doesn't have a, a preamp. The difference between the Marshalls today and then is that I think they've reissued the ones with no, where you don't have a, you can't drive the front end. 
because that's get you some more distortion. Whereas the way those old marshals worked, it was the tail end of the amp that took the beating and the speakers. And that's why they were so loud, just to get that to happen, it has to be maximum power. Not, they don't dime it, they don't take it to 10, but you can get from five up, those old marshals are loud. Even the 50 watt one will blow your head off. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> unbelievable what, that we put up with that. And picture Hendrix and Clapton with two, two double stacks playing right in front of that. <laughs> Holy cow. They're deaf. So what, can you tell, tell everybody and myself exactly what the specs were and what model amp that was that Eddie bought? Because I think that's fascinating that he wanted that amp. We, they it didn't was, know where to get it, but then he ended up with it anyhow. Yeah, it was, it was probably the year was, I bought it out here. Where at? Um, Valley News and Green Sheet. That's like the what a memory. The equivalent of uh, Craigslist today, you know. And I bought it from some guy, and it was an old one from about '67 or '68, which didn't have the preamp, which came with the Mark II amps. Uh, some of the early Mark IIs sound good, like Phil X has one that sounds great, and he said it's because the initially they didn't have the preamp do a whole lot because it was a new thing for Jim Marshall. But later, they all the Marshalls now, you can do extreme front end and get that mashed sound, you know, that a lot of the metal bands like today. You know, it's a very compressed sound, you know, it isn't, it doesn't leap out at you in the same way. Yeah. But, um, so anyway, accidentally, completely accidentally, Ed ended up with the Rock Candy Amp. I he, hope he knew that somehow. I mean, I he never. When I asked him what he thought of it, he said it's too a little too bright for me. Well, didn't you tell him that this is the the amp the, on rock candy? It it didn't occur to me. Oh my gosh! And there, I so just what sold did, it to him. What did you sell it to him for? How much? Four hundred bucks. Four hundred bucks. And, and he came. He 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 said, "I'll come back." I said, "No, take it now. Just pay me later." That's what he, how it what was. was he driving? Those, huh? What was he? What kind of car? He was had he a little black car, and I think it was a Volvo. I'm not sure, but I remember he had come to the house to play "Dance the Night Away." To which play "Dance told the Night before, Away," the first mix of it. Yeah, that and, was when he bought the amp, or was this? Different? No, that was oh, okay. year, a few years later. He wasn't still driving the Volvo, I don't think. I don't know what he was driving because I just remember he took the amp, and then later I ran into him somewhere, and he gave me the 400. Wow. And it's probably still there over at, did they sell his stuff or what happened? At 5150? Wolfgang lives there. That amp might be there. That's cool. But Ed didn't like it as much as his amp, and I agree with him. His amp was just su superior. His amp was stolen at one point, and when it was returned, it had been modified and it never was right again. Really? So he didn't use it. Where was it stolen from, the show? I don't know where it was stolen. I didn't follow Van Halen closely. It was just like he and I were buddies. It was a telephone thing you know, for several years. And when he met Valerie, I stopped hearing from him. I'm sure that he stopped responding to a lot of people when he got into a, a well, serious relationship. Well, I was concerned that, about Jack Daniels and stuff like that. As were a lot of other people. And also some other stuff. What was his amps? Uh, what was the amp that he had? I think they were called JMP, the model. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I wasn't 
fanatical the way the kids are today. Today, the kids will even tell you the cabinet for that marshal. Was it particle board or is it wood, you know, plywood? We didn't even think about things like that. We just bought the damn amp. It sounded good. We used it. It was a simpler world. Yeah. You know, the, I see it all the time now, like kids arguing about which stomp box for distortion to get. Is it still, is it still okay to get the uh, Tube Screamer by Ibanez? Is it right to get this? Is it right to get that? And I, I, I suggest the only ones that I knew that I did like, I said buy an Echoplex, which Eddie had one, or buy a Benson Echo Rec if you can find it. Uh, buy a, an ADA flanger if you can find an old one because the new ones don't have the same circuits. With the old ones that have, have the, the power cord comes right out of the, the box. You don't need a wall wart. That is the only flanger that should ever be owned by anyone. It's amazing. It makes the sound bigger, not smaller. Most stomp boxes take things down a notch. They make them louder, but the size of the sound yeah. is a little less. I don't know why. So talk about Bill Church. With Did he do play on the um, Sammy Hagar solo stuff? He played on every record that Sammy made. Okay. And he even played on some things with Sammy after they had done the eight records. They made eight records together, but there are some other four other things that have surfaced, and Bill's on those too. Very and cool. But Bill never, he disappeared when Sammy left for Van Halen. But I hold that, that just as Eddie was a fan of, of Ronnie, and Ronnie was a terrific rhythm player, and a good writer. Uh, he was at my studio in 2003 with Ricky Phillips from Styx and formerly from the Babies and John Waite. Uh, Rick Phillips played bass also on Page and Coverdale, Jimmy oh, cool, Page. Yeah. He played. He came, Ricky Phillips and Eric Singer, who's the, bass, the drummer now for both Kiss and Alice Cooper. And they came with Ronnie in 2003, to do 10 songs that Ronnie had written. And uh, Ronnie wanted to have 10 different singers. And, uh, and there were some really good riffs and stuff that he had written. On the record that has been released, I don't recognize them because they were worked on so much that it doesn't... I only did guitar, bass, and drums. And we never got past that because Ronnie... Ronnie had a little brain freeze after we did the, the, the basic tracks for this record. It's out there. The record's called 10 by 10, 10 different singers, Glenn Hughes, um, Edgar Winter, et cetera, et cetera. Nice. Sammy Hagar is on that record. And I think that there was so much done in, after they took the tapes from he, my place and put them in a computer, I think they were played with so much that they lost that Montrose feeling. Because I have the record. They came by and gave me an L LP and two CDs. And then they came back and we did an interview once and uh, they didn't use the interview. And I just got the impression that they probably realized that they had taken it somewhat away from the Montrose feel. Because when Ron there's a video of Ronnie in some bar up north 
with Danny Mc, Mc, Dan McNay on bass, and I don't know the drummer's name, and a guy named Randy Scholes, a very good hard rock singer who's nobody ever heard of. And they're just doing a little fun thing one day, and some guy recorded it. There you hear Ronnie. You can feel when he, just the way he hits a chord. It doesn't have the feeling of anybody else. And you think, so what? You hit an A chord, bah, it'll sound the same if it's, no. And Ronnie was playing a Wagner amp and he had a Baker guitar. And when he was at my studio, but the record never got finished and Ronnie died. He got, he came down with cancer. I think it was throat cancer, I'm not sure. And he had chemotherapy and everything and he thought he was okay. And then they told him, no, we've got to go in again. And then he killed himself. Gun, right? Yeah, was a gun. A gun. That's Wasn't the story. Wasn't there some talk that his wife had killed him? I don't want to be disrespectful, but I had heard that story. Yeah, I've heard that story too, but I don't know. Wow. And the, the, the reason given to me was that he, um, is that when you shoot yourself, you do it here uh-huh. or here. Yeah. Or here. Yeah. He was shot in the neck. Oh, my God. This is the story I heard. I wasn't there. I don't know. I haven't seen any police reports. But there's one theory that that his his wife, his second wife, not the one that he offered to us earlier. (laughs) (laughs) So you didn't know that Unchained, I mean, I have this soundbite from Eddie Van Halen speaking, and he says a lot of fair warning was written on piano including Unchained. And you didn't know that, did you? I did not know that. I knew that he had written a few things. I think he wrote Jamie's Crying on the piano. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. I'm not sure of that, but I have a vague recollection of that. And then, of course, later he did some great songs with Sammy. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think Sammy deserves more credit than he's given. Uh, For one thing, he's... Eddie started playing guitar a lot. He became more of a keyboard guy. And what every boy in America wants is more guitar. And so Eddie was pushed aside a little bit. But if you listen to his playing while he was with Sammy, it's pretty amazing too. Yeah. It's uh, it might not be at the level of Top Jimmy and I'm the One and some of those songs, you know, but it's still amazing playing. Any way you look at it. When you came in the studio that day for, you know, in our last interview, and if you're new to this episode show or Doug, that we have a great episode that we did a year ago um, where we talk about Doug Messenger being at the Starwood the night that uh, Van Halen played and Ted Templeman coming in and also Doug calling the Warner Brothers office and trying to notify them about um, Van Halen. That was before Starwood. Well, yeah, you've been doing it for months. You'd been calling there, speaking with Joni, his assistant, at Rock Corporation. Rock Corporation, yeah. But fast forward, and if you want to watch that interview, it's up. It's amazing. It's also on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, et cetera. But what, I need to know what guitar Eddie was playing on the Unchained Sessions. Was it the red and white one or the black and white one? Let's go back. The Unchained Session. When you came in that day, and he said, focused. he put the guitar on you, and you played the guitar in that, that was corner. That a different day, though. 
the yeah, one yeah, yeah. But I had come in one, another day, and he showed me the amp when I was sitting over here. Oh, okay. And uh, so I you said, came I in twice on fair warning. Yeah, you came, came in a couple times. Yeah, I came in, and he put. I walked in, came in through that door, and he came out, and he says, "Here, I will play my guitar," and he put it on me, and I said, "I don't tap." He says, "You don't have to tap. I just want to hear for you to hear my amp." Because he had told me so much about it and I'd heard it. So I played a few chords and stuff. And I said, and it was amazing. It wasn't as loud as my Marshall. Yeah. Probably because he's running it at 90 volts. I didn't know about that. I didn't know about that Variac thing that running a lower voltage into the amp gets a little different sound. And uh, so I had done that. But when I can, and I don't remember which guitar it was. But if I were pressed, I think it was the black and white one. Okay, really. All right, that's... But remember, that's several records after the black and white guitar. So it might have been the red and white one. See, I just can't... Get, We're I, going black and white. <laughs> I, I, I'd have to Final guess. answer. I'd that's simply guess. incredible, though. You know, 19... Was that fair warning? So you 80, know, roughly 30 years ago now... Or no, 40 years ago. You walked through that door 40 years ago. Yes. There's nothing that's changed in this room. You came through that door right behind me and walked up here and played Eddie Van Halen's guitar in yes, Studio Two at Sunset Sound. Yes, I did, and he was laughing and he's, you know, that's he, so cool. He was there was one riff that I had that I still remember now, and uh, I remember playing this riff for Phil X a couple of years ago because Phil came to, to my studio for fifteen years every year, once a year, to do the American Music Awards background music, country music awards background music, billboard music. And I played the, the riff that I played here for Eddie, for, for Phil. And he said, you didn't write that. Phil, Phil's never heard me play. You know, wow. he never was around when I was a player. I said, believe me, I wrote that. Do you remember the riff? Yes, I do. Can we get an acoustic guitar to play or do we need electric? I have Orianthes guitar in my office plus Joe Bonamassa's Next time Dumb I Boy. see you, I could do it. We got to know what that riff was. Yeah. You remember the riff? Yeah, it was a, it was a very kind of a, it would have fit in a Van Halen song, but the chord progression was a little fancier when it got to the verse. I don't know if I can play right now. Let me see, I have arthritis. Look at my no, crooked finger. I've heard you play. You're Look a genius cricket, guitar player. Crooked finger. Well, we'll do it before we leave and edit I'll it. I'll sell crooked fingers since everyone likes me. So how did you come down that day, though? Did Eddie call you and said, hey, we're tracking fair warning? Yeah, he uh, just called me. out. The way Eddie and I, I met him at the Rock Corporation and got his number and Dave Roth's number. I never called David Roth. Yep. I never have talked to him, never have talked to Alex or Michael Anthony, ever. It was exclusively me and Ed talking. It's the guitar bond. We just bond. hit it off. We were guitar yeah. players and... And uh, and we never even talked about Rock Candy. I did hear him say, I wanted a band like Montrose. Yeah. That I, he, he said that. And Templeman wanted a band like Montrose that he yes. could do right and so, put him in singles so, so territory. So I'd say that Ted Templeman deserves a lot of credit sure. for bringing that to fruition, to bring it, to making it happen. Because when I've, I've heard the demo that uh, Gene Simmons did here too, right? Uh, no, Electric Ladyland. They did. The oh, they demos. did that at Electric. Yeah. When you hear that demo, and then you hear what Ted and Don did, it's a world uh, it's, of difference. It's com like it's from just a band to wow. It's Van Halen. Let's discuss that then. Okay, so First, obviously, go ahead. 
You have something else? First time I ever heard about Van Halen was in Pasadena. One day, a kid, I was looking at the Valley News and Green Sheet, and there was a little Marshall amp, a little 212, two uh, no, 410s. They made it with 212s. They made it with 410s. Not a very good Marshall. There was one 212 Marshall that's amazing but hard to find. So anyway, I went out to see this amp, and I was sitting there playing. I said, I said well, thank you for showing it to me. It was a high school kid. And he said, yeah, I don't play it much, and, you know, and I said, oh, it's not for me. And he said, you've got to hear, you've got to hear the local hero. I Eddie said, who's Van the Halen. local hero? His name's Eddie Van Halen. You've got to see Van Halen. Yes. So the name was embedded in my <laughs> head. And when I walked into the Rock Corporation in February of, of uh, 77, right, I, that was probably in 76 when I heard the name Van Halen. And they were, apparently were already known in Pasadena. And when I, you know, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and we talked about that story last time yes. of you, uh, you have seeing them at the Rock Corporation. But there is something there that a lot of people didn't like that you said that tapping is showing off. Okay. Let's tapping, elaborate on that. When tapping is all you do, it's showing off. I'll, I'll rectify it. Yes. Because I realized that I had been a little harsh about it. But I do think that the better lead playing is less involved in something like tapping. Because in tapping, there's Eddie was amazing at it because he would come up with little melodic things in it. Most people, when they tap, they just do a blur of fast notes. And there's no theme, no motif. Yeah. So in that sense, tapping leads most guitar players just to use their youthful, you know, reflexes because you sure. you have to have very good reflexes to do tapping. Yeah. To do it fast the way it's done today, you know, like they they sweep across arpeggios to go like four notes in a fraction of a second, you know. Yeah, that's impressive, but that's high school stuff. In high school, we always like. The guy who's the loudest, the guy who's can throw the ball the hardest, the guy. Speed and strength are a big deal to teenage boys. And uh, Eddie Van Halen, though, reached beyond the boys. A lot of the women liked him a lot too. Eddie was Eddie was pretty. <laughs> he was pretty, but he also his playing was accessible. It wasn't just a lot of notes. Sure, it was melodic. Now, later too. on, when he would do eruption. He'd go on and on for 30 minutes on eruption. And, you know, at that point, I'd, I'd say, where's my Coke? You know, I'd, I'll drink it. Oh, I don't know about that. That's, eruption is boring to you? Well, I heard it so many times. Well, hasn't everybody? It gets better every time I hear it. It is pretty amazing, but, but that's Eddie Van Halen. But in general, the way most people do it, uh, Oh. They're eight-year-old girls who can play Eruption. A little bit of Have my heart seen them just broke. On YouTube, eight-year-old girls playing Eruption. Yes, and they can do it because right. it's more about reflexes. If you send me an eight-year-old girl that can play Eruption, I will give her a free day in the Sunset Sound, and she can come in here and play it on this well, channel. Well, I could look for her. I've seen it. Eight-year-old girls. I've seen ten-year-old girls. I've seen fifteen-year-old. <laughs> they're eighteen boys and girls. Eighteen-year-olds. <clears throat> a lot of people can play Eruption. And I say, a lot of people could do, but a lot of people could not possibly do, uh, let's say, uh, Little Wing by Hendrix. 
I think you are. I, I disagree with you, Mr. Messenger. You think people could play Little Wing well? No. Over Eruption? I think Little Wing would be easier to play. Let's, no, it's let's harder because Little Wing has a very R&B kind of groove to it. And when I've heard even Stevie Ray Vaughan doing Little Wing, it's not quite as cool as Hendrix. I and can Stevie agree on Ray that. Stevie Ray is as bad as a, badass a guy as ever lived. I watched him at the Palladium once. In three hours, he didn't miss a single note. SRV? Huh? SRV. Stevie, yeah. He was incredible. A more precise guitar player than any of them. Really? Just amazing. And I'm not a big fan of Texas blues. I like I love Johnny Win- early Johnny Winter. I loved. I love uh, um, ZZ Top. I love Albert Collins. Doyle Bromhall? Huh? Do you like Doyle Bromhall and the second? Uh, Doyle Bromhall. Do you know him? Oh, yeah. He's amazing. He, you ever hear Oh, Death? Yeah. Was, that's incredible. It's an old Charlie Patton song, and he's made it into something brilliant. Yeah, Doyle Bramhall. But the, the, the average bar band in Texas, it's pretty boring. It's three-chord blues, and uh, okay, we've heard this. Johnny Winter got worse as he got older, but I'll tell you, those first few records, like Second Winter and... And the first one, too. Oh, they were terrific records. Yeah. And Johnny could sing. Let's go back to this Eruption talk, though. <laughs> okay. No, I love Eruption by Eddie Van Halen. You think it's a little boring, though. I mean, it's well, not I, your cup no, of tea, I'll say. I say it's a little boring when I've heard it 50 times. And when he does it, you're kind of waiting to see, okay, what's he going to do this time? And that keeps your interest. But it isn't as compact and brilliant as the one on the record. That thing is so perfect. You know, there's no wondering what I'm going to do next. It was all, and when he was at his best, that's how he was. You'd think that he'd written it, and he hadn't. He he could ad lib, but most people can't do that. When they start Well, no, he did write that. He had been playing that for a while and then brought it into Sunset. You know the story, Don Lendy, or Ted Templeman, hold on. Ted Templeman was like, Roll tape on this. And Don's like, I have been. And they were doing Eruption. But but was it the same every time? I mean, I don't know. It's on some demos well, we we've heard. We should look into that. <laughs> we should. But also, we have a video up on our YouTube channel. Uh, Brian Kehu, who's assigned to the Van Halen. Well, Warner Brothers put him in the vault. He brought in the room mic version of it to prove, you know, it's one take. And they bust in uh, right into... Um, you really got me right afterwards. Yeah. Check it Someone told me on really got me. He didn't use his guitar. That he used a uh, an Ibanez. Yeah, we talked about that last time. Yeah, didn't that we? thing had as good a sound as as his guitar. Yep, amazing we, guitar. And we have a picture of it actually. Um, I'll put it up right now. That Greg Renoff, the Ted Templeman author, supplied us with that Don Landy took in Studio One. And uh, Eddie Van Eddie Van Halen is holding that guitar. Let's talk about Don Landy. Don watches this show, which I think is one of the coolest things in the world. Um, Don bought a work order from us. I hope he's watching right now. Don, we would love to talk to you in any capacity. It doesn't have to be video. We could do audio. I would love to just have a coffee with you, um, not even broadcast it. But I think he's so important to Van Halen sound. And what we were even discussing just a moment ago about 
the vast difference between the Gene Simmons demos and the Van Halen demos, which where they came in here, 25 tracks, 10 rolls of tape in this room, and why, in your opinion, why is Don Landy the best engineer for Van Halen specifically? He was a great engineer for everybody, but why was he so great for Van Halen? Well, I think that he, he Don didn't study the other hard rock records that were out, you know, by Ozzy and great answer. Yeah. other people like that. And he had, and he had been present because he was the engineer on Montrose. Yes. And he learned some things in doing the Montrose record. Like he, he improved the drum sound on the Montrose record is really only sensational on rock candy. The rest of it's good. And the amps weren't as good as the Marshall, but it was good, and Ronnie wrote great parts, you know. And what, I made a comment that I want to take back about Ronnie. Sure. Ronnie was never what I'd call a, a lead player, a guitar hero that way, yeah. where he's a guitar hero. T- he's a good, solid lead player, but very simple, very simple. But as a rhythm player and as a songwriter... He's a beast. He... He's as good as anyone. Well, you kind of like more melodic solos, too. I mean, that's kind of your yes, thing. You like Richie Blackmore's, what's that one well, song? I like Highway Star. Highway Star, which has a great... That, to me, is a brilliant solo. Yes. I mean, teach their own. So, um, yeah, Ronnie was a great rhythm player. He did, had some good An leads. example on. about solos. On Thunderstruck, the famous video of Thunderstruck, the, the solo playing that Angus does there... Okay, it worked, but it's nothing memorable. What was memorable is the whole damn video and his being able to sustain that stuff for that long, for four minutes without blowing it. Pretty amazing. See, he's like same as the guys in Judas Priest. They're excellent rhythm players, but they're not really guitar heroes the way Eddie is. Ronnie was verged on being a guitar hero but Eddie did it yep Eddie and but Eddie would credit Ronnie for giving him a vision and Don kept the vision as well because Don had been there for the Montrose record and Ted's so um honest and complimentary of Don Landy he says Van Halen would not be Van Halen without he had a good ear not to make things too harsh he a, big, a good ear of making the kick drum fat, which people didn't do in those days. Yep. Now, it wasn't a room sound on the drums. It was close-up mics right over there. What, wasn't that the corner? Where the drums were? Yeah, on, on For some that of the Van picture, Halen they put them over there. But I was told, that's another thing. We got a lot of work to do. Because Peggy McCreary, the Prince engineer, she was an assistant on Van Halen 1 and Van Halen 2. And she's the one to ask. But... Right in the other room, I should go get them from Paul right now. We have the room charts for that day that she hand wrote out where the drums go, and we would keep those all were handwritten. So oh. the drums were right where I was sitting, oh. and that's still where every so they engineer. Were here? Yes, cool. From what I'm told. So that picture, that's famous picture. Yeah, that was all just, just a promo. That's picture. and you know Niels Lozauer, who took that picture was in here two weeks ago, and we interviewed. Uh, we had a discussion. He's hilarious. Have you ever met him? No. But anyways, he there's beer cans everywhere. Like they worked during the day. They were well, professional. That all set Ted up. Temple wasn't letting them get completely yeah. smashed on Van Halen One. They yeah. were hungry kids and I don't think there was any of those issues that had mm-hmm. came in yet. But 
from my understanding, the drums are right where I was sitting, facing into the glass. Because mm-hmm. also, um, you know, I can't remember right off the top of my head, but Ted's book talks about he loved being able to see through the glass and see all four members right here. So if if you Alex, have seen him well there, you know what? I could be. Please don't crush me, people. But I kind of remember him saying something that the drums maybe were over there. I got to read the book again for the third time. Well, when I came, Craig play, Renoff would know. When too. I played Ed's guitar in here, there was no, there was no drum kit in the room. They were past that. Oh, okay. So they were doing like overdubs or something. Well, that's what it appeared to be for Unchained. And Eddie wanted to just play what he had played the day before that had been erased. What were they working on when you came? Not the Unchained day, but what were they came when you came through that door and played his guitar? I don't. I didn't hear anything. You didn't say like, oh, we're working on. I was here for ten, fifteen minutes. Minutes. No one was here. Just me and Ed. And. yeah, just just Ed and I. But Don, go back to Don Landy. Yes, but I do He's, want to talk about though. I want to go back to Don Landy. But we need to know about Mean Street. I need to know if there's anybody that has information on how that was tracked, where it was tracked. Which I, Mean, mean Street? Kick off the Fair Warning album. My favorite song ever. I the intro know. for that is literally the. I just don't know. Yeah, that intro is probably the the greatest moment in guitar tapping ever because it's a combination of what bass players did with the thumb and the tapping with these fingers. Yes. The thumb was involved in that one. Yep. Unbelievable. It's such a phenomenal. And Landy got the reverb they put on that. Is un, it can't be any better. It's just phenomenal. Yep. Um, well, let's go back to Don. And then my question still stands and elaborate for me. What made Don Landy the best engineer for not just music, but for Van Halen specifically? He didn't. He almost overdid the reverb on the first record. Almost, but not quite. I, th- I think the second record is for the way. And Fair <laughs> Warning are the two that I like the sound of best. Big time. And. Which uh, one? Fair Warning. What else? Van Fair Halen Warning one? and Van Halen Two. Oh well, Van Halen Two. We found it was not mixed here. It was mixed at Amigo. Did you know that? No, I I knew that that they didn't like tracking over there, but I didn't know they had mixed some stuff there. Yeah, I think. But Don Landy could do some. They, he could mix well, almost anywhere. Sure. And he he knew. But you can tell that it's not. Yeah, if it was not all the tracks, it was it most of the tracks. It all sounds like Don to me. Even 1984, which is none of this gear, it's all up at the house, right? See, I disagree completely with you, and I think a what? lot of people. I disagree with you completely. What? You can't tell the difference from the Sunset Sound records to the 1984. No, I can. I can hear the sound, but it's still very good. Sure. Oh, and yeah. The drums it's like pizza. On, it's and the dead. drums on 1984 <laughs> might not be real drums. Well, it almost sounds to me like those Simmons, Simmons drums. They that's are what the it Simmons. Sound. It is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I've always told people that sounds like fake drums, but the overall vibe is still Van Halen. Because in 5150, they couldn't fit Alex's kit in there. Right. And Alex had this, uh, you know, affinity with. Uh, yeah. No, no, no. Simmons I wasn't drums. saying that. That it sounded the things done here are the best sounding Van Halen records. Sure. Okay. And when other guys like Fairburn and some of those other guys did. Did stuff. It was more like what a lot of people were doing, and it didn't. It lost the Van Halen taste. Gotcha. It was like here I am at Chick Fil A when I want to be at <laughs> when I want to be at Pioneer Chicken. 
or whatever it was back then. <laughs> That's the difference. Don had a good idea about making it sound rich and thick. Yep. And he had the patience to sit through endless punching ins on Roth's vocals, from what I heard. What's um what's a favorite drum song of Van Halen that you like with Don Landy? Like what's really identifiable? Drum sound or drum performance? Yeah, like Lost of Control, I'm the One, Out of Love Again. Like those are some of my favorite drum songs. What's like a, a song where you really hear Alex on? Or Out of Love Again, and you know it's almost like jazz. It just what treats, song do you like? Out of Love Again. I mean, I like them all, but I think that one. He's just so aggressive, and he's all over the kit on it. Um, we talked about this with Glenn. I just like his general groove. I mean, I love J Jamie's crying for the little Tom thing. It's such so nice that the hip hop guy used later on for that wild thing. Yeah, song. Uh, I like I'm the one, just because it's a it's a, a train wreck ready to happen that doesn't go that doesn't go off the rails. Yes. And Eddie said that he played the solo while doing the rhythm track. That he just kept playing, and and he, he told me, I, I can't play that solo. I don't know what the hell I did. See, we <laughs> need to remember these things. It's so great you state yeah, that. Yeah, he said, I don't remember how I did it. And he, uh -huh. I said, it's, it's, a, it's amazing. The solo, and I'm the one, is incredible. And he's doing it throughout the song. There isn't just the solo. There are other spots where he'll, he's taking off. And he said, I was just doing a take, and we figured we'd do a simpler version. We never got to it. We knew this is it. See, that's another thing. Dweezil <laughs> Zapp and I discussed the spontaneity, that thing where they did it. one time in the guy. studio, and it can never be recreated. It's just in that moment. You play guitar. I play guitar. It's like I do stuff, and then I record almost everything I do because yeah. I want to remember how I – even before I start a little record on my voice memo, I, I tell myself exactly – what the key it's in, how yeah. my my fingers right. are phrased on the guitar, everything, because I want to know because there could be I those think things that, that happen. I took chances sometimes. Of course. Where he said to hell with what I thought before I did it. And he would just do it, and it was working, and maybe he'd say, let's do that again. Maybe would, I, now I've got it. But he was a very uh, open to improvising, as you see when he takes 40 minutes to do <laughs> the eruption today. Or the Mean Street <laughs> intro that he kept advancing on yeah um, there's another great video we have up about i've never heard the other versions of it oh i gotta play it for you it's this melodic insane yeah. all those different. little things he did like the thing the intro to women in love the intro to top jimmy i love those things they're just so well done you know a great uh track to listen to Don Landy's drums is Dirty Movies. You feel like you're in the room with Yes, that's an amazing, that's one of my favorite tracks now that you mention it. Yeah. For drums. That's on Fair Warning, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's somewhere on the second side, part way through, yeah. That's a, <laughs> that's a great song. Well, they, they were, now another reason the stuff at, at 5150 doesn't sound as good the gear wasn't as good as this gear. Sure. It's thinner sounding. It's not partly that the drums were fake drums played, but they were fake. It's, and that's a, a narrower, not as broad a sound. And Landy was good at getting a broad sound from everyone. The bass was very natural, a P bass, Fender P bass, doing what it does. No stomp boxes, nothing added. They, that's another thing. Landy stayed away from effect, a lot of effects. 
And he used a, a little Phase 90 face shifter on some of the songs. He might have used it on uh, Ain't Talking About Love. Yeah, weren't we talking about that? It was a shitty little phaser. It wasn't that good. Too bad he didn't have an 88 flanger because that's, buy one if you guys can find one. But get the original. So the original, it has to look beaten up and it has to have no 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 wall wart. It's going to have a real cord. It's the most amazing box imaginable. Makes things bigger, not smaller. Most stomp boxes make things narrower. And Landy kept things broad. So that those first five records are rich sounding. Women and children first. That's a rich sounding da 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 da. Yeah, it's so cool. I mean, he, Ed, Ed could play a simple thing. That's just an, a ninth chord. You know, it's a, a triad where he, he uses the ninth instead of the third of the chord. Da 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 da. Most guys would do that. So what? Eddie Van Halen does it, and you go, man, that's cool. Big time. I, He's a guy, when you knew him, <laughs> I miss him. Yes. I, you know, I've been around a lot of people in this business, and I don't give a shit about most of them. You know, those people who are revered. No, Eddie Van Halen. You know, I, you have to hold him, hold him in high esteem. The same with Jimi Hendrix. There's a certain personality involved which you cannot duplicate. Something, a, vi- a vision that, that these guys had. You know, Hendrix liked um, Barney Kessel, jazz player, and you can hear that on Little Wing and Castle's made a sound. A little, uh, if you listen to the Julie London record, Julie is her name, some of the guitar stuff on that song, Cry Me a River, is reminiscent of what Hendrix did through a Marshall on some of those prettier songs of his. Yeah, wow. And uh, he liked Barney Kessel. He never told me this. And he did tell me he liked Curtis Mayfield. Jimi Hendrix told you he liked Curtis Mayfield. Yes, I, when we were talking <laughs> that day. I yeah. said, so what did you, where, I saw you with Joey D and the Starlighters playing a Fender, a left-handed jazz master, or a right-handed one upside down, and a super reverb amp when I heard him with Joey D and the Starlighters. Yeah. And I said, but even there I could hear that you had been through what I was going through in Boston. In Boston, it was all R&B. There were no rock bands, none until 1971. Aerosmith, somewhat the Jay Giles band, they're not really a rock band, but, mm-hmm. but it was all R&B and jazz and classical in Boston from, until 1969. I don't know why, maybe because of Berklee School of Music. There were no rock and rollers, and I loved rock and roll, and I had the first Zeppelin record you know, that came out, and I saw them play at this, uh, the psychedelic supermarket, and uh, they were called the New Yardbirds the first time they played here. And I, was, I didn't know what to make of it because it was so different. You know, like you have songs like Baby, I'm Going to Leave You or Ramble On. It's taking blues, elements of the blues, and then putting some other chord progressions in there. That you go, man, that is really clever. Pagey, man, he's another guy. Among the guitar players, you've got to mention Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Cliffy Gallup and Gene Vincent's group, Elvis Presley's guy, Scotty Moore. Les Paul. Les Paul. Les Paul, Franny Beecher, the guy on Rock Around the Clock. I defy guitar players today to play that solo. 
I don't think I could do it. And I mean, there were great guitar players, but Hendrix and Clapton changed the whole perspective of everything. I would say Buddy Guy too. I'm from Chicago. I, I, well, yeah, Buddy Guy, but people didn't hear him right away. No, till after Hendrix and Clapton. But Buddy C Guy, Clapton heard Buddy Guy. Oh, you bet. <laughs> Another guy that Clapton heard was Albert King. Of course, I love Albert. Albert King. King had a record called "I Love Lucy." You ever hear that? Of course, it's incredible. And uh, he was a piece of crap person, though I'll tell you. I mean, BB King is a doll. He would, if he were to walk into this room right now, within three minutes, you'd want to go up to him. He was so nice. I've met him a few times actually. He actually did a, a live record here. BB King live at Sunset Sound, nineteen seventy-one. Wow. It's available right now. Look it up. It's I'll look that up. Yeah. You know, he was, and the other king, uh, Freddie King was a nice guy. Texas guy. And I backed him once at the, at the Alliance share up in, in uh, what is that town? San Anselmo. And Freddie King was hung out with Jim Morrison, didn't he? I heard that. I didn't know it. I didn't yeah, know I it. Think it was a but he was there, and a guitar player that was supposed to show up didn't show up, and I was I was out there. In fact, Van had gone home. We had gone into Sausalito, and we ran into Carlos Santana, and we were talking to Carlos, and Carlos and I spoke in Spanish, and we were having fun making Van wait, <laughs> just talking to everything in Spanish and looking at Van as if we were talking about him. Carlos is a fun guy. He's married to Cindy Blackman now. I just talked to Carlos. Uh, I executive produced Orianti's latest record. We recorded in this room in the last three months. And Carlos called Orianti because he's going to play on the track. Oh, cool. And she put it on speakerphone. And we all talked to Carlos Santana two weeks ago. But yeah, he lives in Vegas. He does his residency there. Um, and then his wife, you know, that's Lenny Kravitz. I've recorded drummer. Cindy Blackman at my studio. That's Lenny Kravitz's old drummer. Yeah. yeah. She's a great drummer. Phenomenal. She's better than Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> Lenny Kravitz did the right thing for his songs. Yeah. But she's more of a drummer. All right. One, let's go back to Don Landy just for a moment. What do you think? Why, what did he do to Eddie's? Go ahead. Don made, I think, a great choice in putting the guitar left and putting the reverb right, because he wanted everything to be, people who have recorded a lot and who have done a mono recording once in a while, or a recording where one instrument was st stuck over here, the fidelity when you don't have two speakers agreeing on what something sounds like, the fidelity out of one speaker has something extra to it. And I think Don knew that, and he said, I'm putting this amazing guitar over here. And we can put some reverb over here. I don't know if you can hear some reverb here. I yeah. never really paid attention. But, but Don had a great sense of balance. That's what, how I see it. He's a very nice man. Well, at the same time, being aggressive. Yeah. It is mixes. He's, 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 he's a sweetheart. He's a very nervous guy, if I remember. Uh, the last time I saw Don was when Guitar Center opened in Hollywood. They had a big party. Were you there? No, but uh, you told us the story yeah, twice. Yeah, I told this story before. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Ed, 
Ed and Don came in, and I was up on the steps looking down, and I saw them, and Ed saw me, and he came up the steps pushing through the crowd. It was like 5,000 people in one building. It was insane. And Ed, there was a little office right at the top of the steps, and I didn't even see it, and Ed just opened the door and pushed Don and me into the room. And he pushed us into the room. He says, ah, peace and quiet, you know, and we, we just sat up there for two or three hours just talking. That was it. Two or three hours in a closet talking with Eddie Well, Van that may be two down. hours. But we were just, you could, you could look out, there's a window there. Window, the whole thing was windows, and you could see down, the staircase went over this way. Yeah, the office the was right up here. And we just talked a lot, you know, and. My wife, Cindy, was out there in the crowd because she liked crowds. You know, Spider Taylor's singer. Okay. Now, you said the two words. And a lot of um, viewers have been helping out on this. Spider Taylor was in a band called Pod, but Eddie Van Halen and you went to see Spider Taylor, and Eddie Van Halen said to you about Spider Taylor. Yes. What did he say? He said... That guy, he didn't say it the night that Eddie was there at the Starwood where we were watching my soon-to-be wife's band with Spider. He, we were talking one day. It was on the phone, if I'm not mistaken. And he said, you know that guy, that Spider guy, man, he's amazing. He's as good as it gets, and nobody knows him. And that was how it came out. It was a simple little statement that he loved the way Spider Taylor played. Didn't he say he was the best guitar player he'd ever seen or something? He said he's the best guy I've seen in California. Wow. Spider Taylor didn't play. He wasn't uh, a metal guy. He wasn't. He was just a very good guitar player. You know, the way you imagine the best studio guy in town. He could play beautifully beautifully put together solos and he knew how to play behind behind the singer and pod was a, a strange band roy thomas baker was going to produce them but roy really had more an idea of trying to bed my soon-to-be wife and she wouldn't go for it she oh, said boy. roy you're dreaming you're never getting me and she quit and she quit the business because of him but we've seen Roy since then. I still see Cindy once in a while, and it's been about 10 years, but um, Roy invited us up to his house on Sunset Plaza Drive, I think it's called. It's on mm -hmm. the right. We went to his house once. This is about 20 years ago, and he cooked for us. He's a good cook, by the way, Roy Thomas Baker. He's funny, smart as hell, and he's crazy, too. Wow. He had a wife named Barbara who was one of managing bands. I think she managed Ozzy for a while. Really? Before I think, ask Roy if you ever talked to him. Did your wife Barbara ever ever manage some big rock bands? I think that's what she did. I never met her. It was just Roy and me and Cindy, and we had a ball talking to him. He's a fun guy to be around. Mike Chapman is a fun guy to be around. But he's another, he's a guy who ruined his career because of, Cocaine. First time I met him, he was Roy, Mike Chapman. Do you know who Mike Chapman was, guys? Mike Chapman? They don't. No? He produced Blondie, Exile, The Knack, um, that song, The Warrior by Patti Smythe. This is a guy who had something like 25 straight single, number one, billboard number one, more than anybody before or since. And he um, he called me once because uh, I had done a guitar overdub for him. 
And he said, I have a girl. I'm not sure if I want to record her in my new label. He was putting a label together. This is history now, this part. Uh, uh, a label called uh, Dreamland Records. Mm -hmm. And I figured out why the label failed, and it was intentional. I think that he and Nikki Chin had tax problems, and they said, let's start our label and let's make everything be, be a failure and we can write it all off on the books. That's what I think happened. No one ever said this. This is my theory. But Mike Chapman called me and says, I need to have a demo on a girl named Holly Penfield, and I'd like to have it by Thursday. This was a Monday. And I said, Jesus, I don't know what she does. He says, well, I'll go here. I had met her. Uh, I had met her because she was a friend of Bud Prager's, too. He, Holly Penfield is the guy who managed Foreigner, and he liked Holly, and I think that's why Chapman was interested in her. So my, I had a little band I was putting together. We went into Sound Labs, Armin Steiner's place behind Capitol. That was the best-sounding studio in L.A., better even maybe than this. Maybe. That's sacrilegious. We don't say that. I, you don't put it in. Just get him a edit, out of here. edit, cut it get out. Get out of here. Get out of here, messenger. <laughs> no, Armin Steiner's place was a Dean Jensen quad eight, right? The early quad eight and a Stevens. <laughs> Unbelievable. What that two, those two together. Well, Led Zeppelin didn't go there. They came here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, your, your <laughs> studio one is partly designed by Dean. Yeah. Yeah. He, and my board at my studio is yep. Dean Jensen. Dean Jensen boards. I also, would, speaking of uh, Doug's studio, he has an amazing studio that's open now for the public if anybody would like to record. Um, it's over in North Hollywood. It's Doug Messenger Studio. You can look it up. There's also a great Instagram page, Doug Messengers, uh, where you can connect with him here. There has his email, phone number if you'd like to book some studio time. But that's a great room you have over there. I mean, you guys did Jimmy Eat World. You did At the Drive-In a couple records, which was later Marge Volta. Uh, Joe Bonamassa did his first recording. We did Hey There, there. Delilah. Hey we there did Delilah. Uh, Animal by uh, Neon Trees. We did all of those bands except from, from the early 2000s, except Green Day. And he has one of the most historic, awesome Stevens tape machines that he will not sell to me. But... You said you are leaving it to me in your will, right? Maybe. Oh. Perhaps. It's, but Rumors was mixed on that tape machine? Rumors mixed. It, Fleetwood uh, Mac the, Rumors? The, the Wall. Pink Floyd The Wall Ken was mixed Calais on Ken Calais was the guy who told me that I had found accidentally the Stevens that had been at Producers Workshop that did The Wall. I know they, had, they spent 1,600 hours, days, no, hours, 1,600 hours to making the wall at the producer's workshop. They had started a couple of things in Paris, another two days or three in New York at A&R, I think. And then they came here and were there for 1,600 hours. That's a crazy amount of hours. Yeah. But listen to that record. It's incredible. Let me ask you a question, which I think is one of the coolest events to ever happen, is Eddie Van Halen comes to your house over on Fountain Avenue here in Hollywood, pulls up. You jump in. He says, hey, we just mixed Dance the Night Away. Let me play it for you. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get much cooler than that. How did um, that was he called you and said he must have left Sunset and like rolled over to your house yeah. and said, we just mixed it. I got the tape. Yeah. And he played Dance the Night Away for you. He must have come straight from Sunset. What were your immediate thoughts and reactions on Dance the Night Away? I, I thought right away, 
This is a Ted Templeman song. Ted will like this because it's radio potential. And Ted was very aware of the importance of getting a hit on the radio. For any band, it helps. Whether it's Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd, it doesn't matter who you are, you, or James Brown, for that matter. You want the single. And I said, this is a single. And it got to the point where the guitar, they paused the song, and the guitar is playing something with a phaser, but the guitar is quite out of tune at that part. And I was telling Eddie, you should redo that guitar part. And he said, no, nah, I don't care about this song that much. You know, He said, wow. it's good enough. He <laughs> said, it's good enough. And it is. Nobody's ever told me the guitar is out of tune in that spot. Because Eddie's usually in tune. Yeah, sure. And that's probably Don Landy leaning on him, saying yeah, that G-string has to come up. Don, Don Landy is a very meticulous guy, very nervous, like when, that, when he had his head down on the console while Ed was trying to think of what to do about Unchained. I knew Don was having a break, nervous breakdown. And he said at one point, he says, he says, we do anything here, I might get fired. I might get fired. And I think Ed said, I think Ed said something Don like, Don said I might be get fired? Huh? Don said I might get fired? Yeah, yeah. I think he was concerned that maybe Ted would be mad because Ed was going to go and play something without Ted being there. See, we spoke with Ted, and I brought that up, and he... And Greg Renoff had reiterated this that you know he days. was well he was a VP at Warner Brothers plus he was producing like three artists yeah, you know over Doobie at Amigos Brothers. Doobie Brothers here Van Halen in this room so he had to move around but he said he always knew what Don was doing but Peggy McCreary said the same thing that they came there was in no secretly remixed oh well the Peggy main day I didn't see anyone in there just them okay because Peggy and- McCreary said that they secretly remixed. An album, she said that. But then I believe that because what happened that day was a secret kept from Ted. Maybe they told him later. I redid the guitar on Unchained, but at the moment I could see that Ted, that uh, Don was nervous about it. Yeah. Because I was saying, go ahead, do it again, do it again, you know. And then I left. <laughs> I said, I've gone far enough with this, and I left. I would love for And him then to when c- they finished the record, Ed called me, and I met them out in the parking lot here. They were going to party here, but when I got here, everyone was in the parking lot, a whole bunch of people. And Eddie had his arm around Valerie and his right arm around a bottle of Jack Daniels. And I told him, I said, Ed, that's bad. Don't do it. I told they had him. just finished the record then. Yeah. Wow. It was the end of it. It was over. We just finished it, and we're going to, I don't know what we're going to do. Come on over, and da da da. And I came over, spoke to him in the parking lot for a while, and then I I didn't stay. I don't know why, I didn't stay. Because you I, didn't, you never drank, have you? No, you never had but, one sip of alcohol. Well, I've had a sip or two, but I don't drink. Yeah, gotcha. That's it, great. And under certain circumstances, I know it's smart. I'm, these guys are having some brandy. I'll I'll take no, no, some no. brandy. Yeah, I totally get it. But I it's, think but it's amazing. I, I don't care what you do as long as you don't hurt yourself. Yep, and look at all I the famous artists. I know people who did artists. cocaine for 10 years and came out of it with no damage. Sure. Ray okay. Charles, heroin all his life and some damage, but not too much. Look at all the artists in the studio that make this place so famous. Look at what all the problems they had and oh, what they came seen. from. Prince, Eddie, Jim Morrison. I met Prince here. 
but I knew I, I was shooting baskets out there. And he came walking out, and he walks up, and, he, and I tossed the ball to him, and he caught it. And he says, oh, I'm Prince. I said, I'm Doug. He turned and took a shot, and it went in. And then he kept walking up to one. He walked past me to Studio One. That's my moment with Prince, who was oh, here. Okay. And then you brought that girl at my studio, Apollonia. Yeah. Whatever happened to that? Did you ever put it out? No, she hasn't released anything yet. I don't know why she's not. Because that was a good interview. Yeah. It was very good. Everything I produce is good, Doug. <laughs> well, it should be. You're, you're Drew. You're Drew. Yeah. Drew Dempsey. Do yeah. you know Dan Dempsey? producer he's a record producer yeah he helped do a group called solos at my studio it was an amazing record dave jordan heard it and he wanted to do them he said i want to do i want to produce those guys because the, the guy who produced them was uh guy massey from abbey road yeah he's been in my studio for three records and what we did with him is we did 16 uh 16 inch two-inch tape at 15 ips. And uh, Guy Massey took the tapes to England and gave them to a guy, some guy over there to mix. And then about seven months later, he called me one day. He says, can you get me some more Scotch 250 tape? We're going to try to do what we did at your studio at Abbey Road with some new band they had. He called me about a month later. He said, your room was better for, for this approach than Abbey Road. What? Ask Guy Massey. <laughs> when you see him, say, Guy Massey, tell me about Doug Messenger's studio. Now, the next thing he came to my studio with was a disaster. There was a producer named uh, Josh Henry, and he had these two young girls who thought they were going to Fleetwood Mac, but they weren't, and it was a disaster. And the tape that they bought was defective tape. It was brand new tape. It was defective. And instead of just saying, okay, so we're gonna, not going to use 1 and 24, we'll use from tr track 2 to track 23 and do it. This guy threw a fit, you know, threw a fit and blamed me. He says, you bought, you bought bad tape. I said, it's the only tape that's available. I bought it. And it's brand new. I can't help it if it's a defective tape. And you got around it. You ended up doing okay. He's one of those guys. He told me, if you ever say a word about this to anybody, I'm going to sue you. You hear that, Mr. Henry? Wow. Um, guy Massey, he's a cool guy. He re remastered all the Beatles stuff. And he said, I tried to keep it close to the original with a little more definition. All right, so where were we? I got three more questions and we're done. Um, oh, I, one thing. Go ahead. We were talking about Mike Chapman for a minute, and I, we, we stopped. Uh, so I'd made this demo for him, this girl, Holly Penfield. And this is just fun stuff, what I'm going to tell you. So he, uh, he did sign her to his label, and they made five records. And Holly Knight, who's a famous writer now, mm -hmm. had one of the groups. They were, the group was called Spider. And they, I think they intentionally made their label sink so they could write it off to what they owed the IRS. Because those five bands got nowhere, but some of the people from those bands became famous afterward. He really had an ear for it. But I went to see, he called me when he said, hey, it's, it's my birthday and I come on over. So I went over to 
MCA Whitney. You ever hear of that studio? Yep. It had two Neve rooms. Frank Zappa worked on Hot Rats there. It was a very, it had a, a full on church organ, 20 foot pipes. And uh, there he was doing Tanya Tucker in one room and Holly Penfield in the other. So Mike comes in dressed in a un, an army <laughs> uniform with medals and all the stuff they that they have, you know, and he's wearing, he has a pipe like Franklin Roosevelt, you know, a, a little cigarette holder. And he, he, there was one of those, there was a couch, and behind it was one of those Italian lamps where it's a, a piece of metal that's like a bar that comes out, and then there's a, a thing over the, over the, ta- the little coffee table and stuff. Chapman walks over to the coffee, near the coffee table, and there's that thing hanging, starts banging his head against it, <laughs> right? Looks down at the birthday cake they had put on the table for him, and sinks his face into the cake. <laughs> he goes, <laughs> that's Mike Chapman, complete insanity. And you're going, <laughs> you're, you're producing, and he says, get me a towel, get me a towel. <laughs> he wipes all the stuff off his face. He says, get, get that guy out in the front to go buy another cake, you know, stuff. And so he says, I'll be back in a minute. He goes into Tanya Tucker room. She comes out. And this is, you know, my days as a young pretty boy, you know. I had all the hair and all the shit. Tanya Tucker was recording Tanya Tucker. She just, you know, she's recording, uh, she recorded that album she won the Grammy for, Best Country Album, with Shooter Jennings in in Studio 3. They just recorded that two years ago. Cool. That's nice. Yeah. She's nuts, though. First album in 20 years. I was there with my wife, Cindy, right? And and Tanya Tucker comes walking, walks straight toward me and grabs me by the middle. (laughs) Out of nowhere, she's she was this crazy young chick. She goes like that, and I pushed her hand away. And Cindy stepped in. He says, "The next time you're going to end up dead." You know, Cindy was a tough chick. All right, we're going to cut. That Cindy out. just told her, "You do that again, you're dead." And of course, she didn't mean it. And then Chapman went down to the room with this Holly Penfield chick, who was doing a song called "Don't." Don't Bang on That Piano was the name of the song. And uh, it was a shitty song. And uh, then they were doing another one that was a very good song. I don't remember what it was. But Chapman is that kind of a guy. He'll do crazy shit, but he has a, he's a guy who has an idea. He knows when a lick, like one of the licks I did on the Holly Penfield thing, I made it up on the spot. When he heard it, he, there are five songs we had to do. We had to learn them and record them in five days. Shitty, a guy mixed them named Steve something, Steve Jarvis. He wasn't much of an engineer. Uh, but the studio, that's how I met uh, Armin Steiner and then Bill Robinson, because Armin Steiner noticed that I made good comments, and he told me, come here, son. You know, and he said, you should be an engineer. Because you've noticed things in what you're doing here today that the engineer didn't notice. Because Chapman just put us there with no engineer, no anything. Yeah. And I wasn't a producer yet. You know, I didn't. You know, I've been meaning to ask you, uh, switching channels, had you ever come across Alan Holdsworth? Did you ever hang never. out with him? Never saw him play, never I hung out with him? I know that he's right now on the rise among young guitar players. Alan Holdsworth? Yeah, no, people are talking about him. I had a kid tell me last night. A guy who's 23 years old said, who's Alan Holdsworth? He, oh, so, you mean people are talking about him now? They're talking about Because you know him and Eddie's relationship, and they had worked no, together. I didn't know that. 
Oh, yeah. Ted Templeman. He made Ted Templeman produce Alan Holdsworth. And, he's, and he told me that the things he most liked were the Beatles and Eric Clapton and Cream. That he never really was into Hendrix until later yeah, when he heard I'd Hendrix heard a lot. Because uh, what I took from that was because the Beatles and, and Cream were very much more organized sounding bands. It wasn't wild. And at that point, Ed liked, loved the Beatles. He just loved them. And he loved that. And uh, he didn't mention too many other things that he liked. He loved, oh, his two favorite guitar players other than Spider were Billy Gibbons. Okay. Billy Gibbons. Billy Gibbons and um, Billy Gibbons and Eric Clapton. And he said, I learned how to play all the, all the cream stuff. And uh, Billy Gibbons, I just listened to because he's so cool. Yes. And I don't think I've ever seen that anywhere. Speaking of the kids today, I know that there's the know-it-all Van Halen people that know every single thing, but there's also a reason we do this show is to, you know, the up-and-coming guitarists today can learn about Van Halen that maybe haven't been around for 60 years that to know everything. Mm -hmm. So everybody's on a learning curve here. But if you had a Van Halen, if you had a kid that wanted to, that came to your studio and wanted to hear Van Halen, what is the first song that you would play them? They said, I want to hear a Van Halen song. I've never heard them. What song would you play Ooh, for them? That's tough. What a great question. That's Drew. too tough a question. No. You die after this interview. <laughs> oh, my God. What? Just for sheer rock and roll, I'd say ain't talking about love. I think there's probably 60% of people that would say that. Because I think that that's something that's, that has the – enough to it that different types of people would like it. It isn't like I'm the one, which is just, you know, <laughs> a railroad train going, you know, it, it, it has a nice, it's, it's really cool. Jamie's crying is too cute. Uh, Jump Street. is too cute. Mean um, Street's too dark. You know, it's a song of Van Halen that I love. One of my favorite Van Halen songs is with Sammy Hagar singing. It's um, it's that with the country thing. Uh, I don't know. I'll think of it later. <laughs> I'll stop the interview and I'll throw sure, it in. Sure, yeah. Um, so to close here, uh, we have documented that you're going to give me your Stephen State machine. Um, that is documented now, and you said yes. But... What a lot of people got in my case because I interrupted your Jimi Hendrix story last time. Let's talk about you and Jimi Hendrix. How did you first meet him? And that was at the. Didn't I explain that? No, yeah. I did. I did with Joey D. Well, no, I interrupted you last time, and then oh. everyone's like, "Fucking Jimi." So you want me to go right from him. the top? Yeah, I mean briefly. But okay, you saw Jimi at uh, playing for Joey D and the Starlight. Where was that at? At the Tiger's Tail. Uh, in Revere Beach. It was one of the three, four bars that were along there, and they all had music. There was the Tiger's Tale, there was the Lewis Room, there was Ebb Tide, and there was Alfonso's. Um, they were all owned by mob, got the mob, the kind of guys who at the end of the night, when they're trying to close the club, would come in and say, hey, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> That's how they talked. Yeah. You know, that Italian thing. It was really funny. And they loved me. The, the mob loves musicians. They treat you like you're extra something. You can be the shittiest little band in Boston, and they'll treat you well, and they'll tell the waitresses if they want anything, give it to them. If they want pizza, get them the pizza, you know, et cetera. So, yeah, I was, um, I was playing in a band called Bobby Ace and the Stacked Deck. It was an R&B band. We were doing James Brown, Motown. Uh -huh. uh, Motown, you know, was done... Barry Gordy is a genius. He didn't want it to be very funky or very black. That's why the drums are always straight four on the snare or a backbeat on the snare. You know, tatten, 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 a lot of that, or just tatten, tatten, you know, always. And it had to be palatable to whites and blacks alike. And he thought of it in those terms. This I know because I know people who knew him. And I know I know Smokey Robinson's guitar player very well. We were buddies in Boston. He's a white guy named Bob Boogie Bowles, terrific guitar player. And uh, uh, he uh, so there are all these bars there, and and the mobs running them and all that. And I, we finished early one night at at the Lewis Room. And we said, let's go and watch the band up there at the at the Tiger's Tail because that was the the best one was the Ebb Tide. That's the one where they had a lot of, like, the Temptations and things like that. And the local bands that were like, like the Three Degrees, some Boston girls who had a hit record. Well, when will I see you again? You've probably heard it. But so anyway, we walk into the Tiger's Tale, and the guy at the door says, hey, because all the bar bars in Boston knew all the musicians. And come on in, man, you know, hey, Jimmy's here, da-da-da. And I look up on the stage, and there's, there are two backup singers who later became the Young Rascals. Oh, wow. Eddie Brigatti and uh, Felix. Pap, Pap, Cavalieri. Cavalieri. Yeah. He and I almost started a band together, but no we saw that we, he still wanted to do a slightly poppy R&B thing when I was already thinking Hendrix and Zeppelin and Cream and, and Power, you know. So... But he's a nice guy, a very nice guy. And uh, I met him here, uh, David Braun, who's manager for uh, a lot of people, George Harrison, Michael Jackson, and Jack Nicholson. He, he managed a lot of people. Uh, Michael Jackson was stolen from him by his own protege, John Branca. But anyway, so there's Hendrix. I didn't know who he was, and I listened. They were playing a couple of songs, and then it was the end of the night. And I said, that guitar player is really good. He had played the guitar behind his head, and he had played it with his teeth, and he had played it between his legs. He didn't hump his amp the way he did later, which he told me the last time I saw him that he regretted doing that. He said, that was pretty crude. You know, he said, it's, my parents hated that. <laughs> you know, he was from, he's a, an Army kid, yeah, an Army brat. His dad uh -huh. was in the U.S. Army. And Seattle, and uh, the um, so there's Hendrix. And I walked. The other guys walked over to the to to, to Felix and you know the other guys. And I saw the. I went straight to Hendrix. I didn't know who he was, and he had short hair. He was wearing a do rag, 
which is, you know, you just put lye on your hair, and then you put a, a do-rag. You know those little black things some of the mob guys wear, yeah, some yeah. of the hip-hop people wear now? And sometimes they'd leave it on, sometimes they'd take it off. Because it when, once the lye dried, your hair was stiff. It's a do-rag. straight. Yeah. Your do-rag. So I walk up to him, hi, I'm Doug, I'm playing down the street, I really like your playing. Hey, and man, he says, Jimmy. He says, this is just a, another gig. But I'd done a lot of those gigs too, you know, like I backed Al Green and I backed Eddie James. and uh, You'd see these people and we, the mob put us down in the basement and says, God, go down, go down there, you know, we're cleaning up right now. <laughs> and uh, so we're down there and we're playing Monopoly. There's a Monopoly game on the floor and yes. Hendrix said, "Yes, anyone for Monopoly? And I said, I'll do it. And four of us sitting there playing Monopoly on a little table and the mob threw us out at that point. But in the meantime, there's something about that that came up this year that I'll tell you about. Just like with Ted and the Mar my Marshall amp, I had no idea that Ed had asked for that amp and Ted didn't yeah, know yeah. where it was. But So Jimi Hendrix and you and two others. I'm talking are to him. He says, well, I'm Jimmy James. He was yeah. using that name for a while. His real name is Hendrix. And uh, and we talked about some stuff. He said, "Who do you like?" He says, "He says I like all kinds of guitar players. You know, I played with King Curtis for a while, and I've done this and I've done that, and uh, Don Covey, some of the people that I like too, Curtis Mayfield. He mentioned, and uh, and so that's all that happened that night." move five years ahead that was did you get his uh, phone number or just like okay that was no, cool no, playing monopoly see, no, jimmy james happens. i didn't get anything then. gotcha people didn't do that then fast forward five years later no. in hollywood well remember that was 1965 first week of december in 1965 what a memory and the reason have. no that one i found online that jimmy okay. hendrix had played in massachusetts the first week of December of 65. <laughs> so move ahead five years to 1970. A friend of mine, Danny Weiss, and I met over at, at the Whiskey one morning, and there's another guy we knew had an amp, and he wanted to take the amp somewhere to repair it. You know, and, uh, and I said, put it in my, my... In those days, you could just park your car in front of the Whiskey. They didn't shoo you away immediately sure. if there was nothing going on. <clears throat> and so... And I look across the street, and there's Hendrix. There's a little place called the Music Hall, a little uh, LP place. They sold LPs and 45s. Yeah. And it's Hendrix. I said, that's Hendrix, man. I didn't recognize him as the guy I had met. So this is 1970. This is 1970, probably late February, Okay. early March, somewhere in there. Hey, Jimmy, you want to play some Monopoly? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it went the other way. Wait till you see what happened. So anyway, uh, I, I was looked at and I said, I'll take the guy's amp and get it fixed later, you know, because they're gonna, not going to go on for a few hours. There were four bands, as usual, setting up at the Whiskey. And uh, this might have been a, somewhere maybe around noon or a little after. And I ran over there to see Hendrix. And there are people crowded around him, and he's writing a few autographs. He's, he looked like hell, man. He looked dirty and greasy, and his hair was sticking out. He didn't look like the guy I had met. Yeah. 
You know, the, the guy I had met was a neat, clean-cut guy with pants with crease, creases in the pants and patent leather uh, pumps for shoes. Sure. You know, very elegant guy the first time I saw Hendrix. And I said, that's Jimi Hendrix, man. And I had, are you experienced? And I had Axis Bold as Love. And I thought Axis Bold as Love was an amazing, I still think it's a great record. Time out real quick. So you had met him before those records were recorded. Then they were recorded, and were you like? And that's when I, I played Monopoly with that guy. Yeah, well, were you blown away that those? Right, rec- I'm getting to that. Okay, I didn't know that it was that guy. All right. So I went Sorry. over, and I'm standing in the crowd, and he starts shooing people away, and he gets an opening, and I'm standing there, you know, with my long hair, and I was a sharp dresser back then. I mean, I I wore stuff from the South Sea bubble in London Ooh. and all the better places, <laughs> and you know, expensive shoes and shit. And Hendrix looks through the crowd at me and he he stops all of a sudden and he goes, I know you. He, he pointed at me to tell me he knew me. I, I said, you, man. I said, I know you, but I don't know you, but I know who you are. You're Jimi Hendrix. He goes, I said, your records are amazing, man. It's a, it's like way beyond what I'm doing right now. And uh, and he was a thank you, man. You know, he spoke real soft, very soft, a gentle speaker. I mean, he'd be talking like this here. Hey, yeah, man, that, that's groovy. That's cool. You know, that kind of a talker. And uh, very articulate. And he said... He started that, and he says, I'm kind of fucked up right now, but people, come on, come on. Let me talk to this guy. So they, they, they went away. A couple of the girls stood at a distance hoping to meet him. And I said, let's take a walk. So we walked down. There used to be book soup up there. They moved way down to the other, yeah. at the bottom there by Tower Records. And I said, let's take a walk. So we're walking down Sunset, and he's telling me, man, We've, it took us about five minutes to figure out how he knew me and where he had met me. At first it was, I know you. I said, no, you don't know me. I know you. You don't know me. No, I know you. And he, so he said, okay, where, did you, where are you from? I'm from Seattle. Where are you from? Boston. He says, I've played in Boston. Maybe it was Boston. And that's how we got around to Revere Beach and Boston and Joey D and the Starlighters. So we figured it out. And all of a sudden, it's that kind of brotherhood feeling that musicians have when you meet someone, and then it happens again later, and it's kind of cool. And here he is, a big deal, and I'm still just, you know, 1970. I didn't play with Van Morrison then, right? I didn't play with Van till the end of the year. Okay. I hadn't played with him yet. We're walking down, and he says, he says, I'm really, I'm sorry, man, I'm really fucked up right now. He says, I got to stop doing drugs, man. He says, right now I'm fucked up. And I said, well, let's talk about it. And he says, no, I don't want to talk about it. And I said, I want to talk about it. Because you, you know, didn't like, do drugs. And I didn't do any drugs. He said he looked all messed up, scruffled. He looked totally fucked up. Was and he heroin? said, I'm fucked up, you know, I'm, I'm dizzy right now and I, all that. And he said, well, you're making sense. But you're not making sense when you say, let's talk about something else. You've got to talk about the drugs. And I said, look, man, I've known you for five years. You know, that was back in Boston in 1965. That's before you guys were born. How old were you? When were you born? 83. 
Uh, so you weren't <laughs> even here yet, any of you. And here I that was, was a playing, glimpse playing in, the, in my in father's band. eye. And so we're talking about it. And I said, I, I went in that liquor store that's still there. It's halfway down that block. And I got a little matchbook and a pen from the guy in the liquor store. And I wrote my phone number in it. And I 213 area code 6548209. Okay, <laughs> you like the memory shit. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I wrote my number and I handed it. I said, Jimmy, call me. We can get, we can stop the drugs if you talk to me. I've been in bands with guys who are shooting heroin, guys who are doing meth, crystal meth. They, crystal meth, they've done seconalls, blackie, blackies, perps, you know, all the different drugs that were available. There were a lot of pills. People took a lot. Of, now you just go to a doctor, and any doctor you go to, you just tell him you have a disease. He'll give you five pills. They don't want to be doctors anymore. They just want to give you a prescription. Yeah. It's pitiful. So anyway, I, I told him, call me. Call me. He says, I'll call you soon, man. And so we walked back up, and then I walked over to the whiskey, took the guy's amp down to modern music, waited, got it fixed, took it back. I just needed a tube. I don't remember that guy, who he was. can't remember. And uh, my friend Danny. Had Where gone. did you leave Jimmy at? On Sunset? Did you guys split ways? Yeah. Or did he walk? We split, did he, we were, what hotel was he staying We at? started walking back up to the, the place. And somewhere where we, we started, I ran across the street to the whiskey, said goodbye to him. And I don't know where he went. Yeah. And I wasn't the type. I sh probably should have said, where are you staying? And go over there with him to really try to get into it right away. But I had other shit to do. And, and uh, I was young, you know very young and I just I just left. I thought he'd call me. He never called me. And there was a bad joke I used to make. He says, if Doug asks you to call him and you don't call him, you die. Because four months later, Hendrix was dead. Jesus. Four months later. August or so? July or August? I think it was July. July, yeah. Somewhere in there. Yeah, he was very nice. Very nice guy. And we talked, and we talked about the Monopoly a little for a minute. He says, yeah, Mono we played Monopoly. One of the first things he Who said won? when he, we didn't get far enough because okay. they came in and said, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. The mob Hey, Jimmy us. James. Yeah. <laughs> Jimmy James. No, one of the first, first things he said when he said, I know you, and when we figured out that I, where, I, where we had met, he says, yeah, we played Monopoly. He brought it up there. And I said, yeah, we did. So anyway, I can't believe he remembered that and you did not. I wasn't even thinking about it. Sure. I was just Jesus Christ. I just. Well, I think Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix is Jimmy more Hendrix. intelligent than you are to tell you Probably. the truth. Probably, <laughs> please. He had to be smarter than I am. He's, he played better guitar than I did. Let me ask you the same question I did for Van Halen, but now with Jimi Hendrix. There's a kid that's 18 years old, comes to your studio, doesn't know Jimi Hendrix. What's a Jimi Hendrix track you would play to introduce his music to that young? kid what do you know about what he likes so far the kid the kid <laughs> yeah the kid he likes tool and gary clark jr well if he likes tool then he likes fairly hard stuff so i would turn him on to star spangled hey, banner or woodstock star spangled banner or woodstock and uh Voodoo Child. Yep. They're the Reprise. two. 
They're the two. They win. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, one more thing about Monopoly. There's a guy named Nicky Carula. He's an Indian-American kid, a really amazing guy, terrific songwriter and performer, but he, he'll never make a good record because he does the mixes, and it's a disaster, and he doesn't know it. A total disaster. I watched him in my studio twice now. Nikki, come on. And I set it up. Yeah, but I want to hear this guy because he sat in with John Mayer. Oh, shut up. That isn't the point. The point is this song. He's that kind of guy. But anyway, he called me about six months ago. He said, I never believed you about Monopoly and Hendrix. <laughs> yeah. And I said, well, I believe you now. I said, why? I'm reading something here, and he read it to me, about how whenever the Hendrix family gets together, they play Monopoly, the whole family. And it was Hendrix who had seen the game and said, hey, Monopoly. I was like, Monopoly? Okay, let's play. But apparently it was a big thing to oh, the yeah. Hendrix I mean, family. I believe you. You're this guy read it to me. legendary it's guitarist and producer, and you've... So and you had two encounters with Jimi Hendrix, then, yes, and they that's were obviously right. very personal, both of them. So yes. I mean, it wasn't just they were high very. Uh, I've met other guys who was nothing like Felix Cavalieri of the Young Rascals. I met him; we hit it off great. But I don't, I have no real much no memory of a of another guy was Dave, a guy who sang Dirty Work on Steely Dan's first record, Dave something. Mm -hmm. I can barely remember his name. I can't even remember his last name. I've met a lot of people. Met Diana Ross once at a Foster Freeze, you know. But it was nothing like meeting Jimi Hendrix. Let me ask it you was this. special even without my knowing. So I interviewed Rodney Bingenheimer, who used to hang out with Jimi Hendrix, uh, and that interview's up. But do you remember a band called Cake? I remember the name, but I don't okay. remember. Well, they them. used to hang out with Jimi Hendrix, and they actually had a house that was shaped... Uh, like a cake. It was circular yeah. up in the Hollywood Hills. But I guess Jimi Hendrix stayed at that house. So I wonder if he was there. Second question. Do you remember a band called Volar X? They used to open up for uh, Van Halen and they would dress up no. as space people. And no. When I'd see Van Halen, he was so magnetic to me. As but they were an L.A. band at that time. Yeah, it was kind of around. I thought you might know I remember them. seeing the name, but I didn't know them at all. I don't even remember who they were playing opposite. The only thing I remember them playing opposite before they were signed was a group called Ziggy and the Zoo from Chicago. Hmm. And the, the reason I remember that is that I got the keyboard player from that band to come out here to start a band with me. He was amazing. He got killed in a car accident, and that was the end of that group. I had two, two bands that went to pieces because of uh, deaths. All right. I got to ask you one more question that has nothing to do with music. You're from Boston. Did you ever come across, and speaking of mobsters, did you ever come across Whitey Bulger? Yes. You did. I uh, knew it. I did because you had to. When you're playing at the Intermission Lounge and in Rhode Island playing at Raymond Patriarca's place, he was the big guy in Rhode Island, Raymond Patriarca, at Ziggy, Ziggy's in, in, uh, in Rhode Island and another club called the Gaiety at Go-Go. That had nothing to do with gay, being gay. Gaiety yeah. then meant feeling good. And Raymond Patriarca and his son were there a lot, and I got to know his son. But in Boston, the Boston guys were Whitey Bulger, Joe Bolero and his brothers, 
Louis and Freddie Venus, Izzy Ort, and a, guy, a bunch of guys with Italian names. But I got to meet a number of them because he'd play at their, we played at the Intermission Lounge, which was the Bolero Brothers. Uh, we played there for 16 weeks straight. Wow. This is where the band musicians then were better than today. And people say, oh, that's bullshit. Yes, we had more of a, today you have kids who are amazing in one little area, and that's it. We had to play everything. We played six sets a night, seven nights a week, and two sets Saturday afternoon, two Sunday afternoon. That is 46 sets in one week, 40-minute sets. By the time you've done it for 16 weeks, the band is a machine. <laughs> but and you get so good. It's like practicing all day. Um, but Whitey Bulger, did you ever talk to yes. him? Yes. I didn't talk to you him, but he came in to talk him? to the Boleros. Okay. So I remember him talking to Joe, Joe Bolero, Billy Bolero, Bruno Bolero, all those guys. And I remember they were at a table. And when they ever, whenever that kind of thing happened, they either went upstairs. There was a room up there, a tap room of some kind that was just for the mob. Or they would tell everyone who was down in the main club in the afternoon, go downstairs. <laughs> you yeah, don't notice him. nothing. You know, and that's well. You know, they found him in Santa Monica. Yeah, yeah, he was was walking a dog or something. Well, no, he was uh, his uh, the woman he was living with became too friendly with a neighbor, and she ratted on him when she figured out who they were. Figured out, oh man! And then he got he was his first day when he got transferred into general population. They ripped out his tongue and killed him in prison. Really? Yes. That must in, have been the Boleros having it done for them. Why would them. they have? Well, and they were never should have put him in general population. It was like within, he got transferred to general population in prison. One, he was like in a wheelchair. Here in L.A.? No, in Massachusetts. Oh, I didn't know they had taken him back. Yeah. They found him guilty on you know, oh, yeah. tons of murder charges, everything. And then within like an hour, somebody cut out his tongue because he was a rat. And killed him. I, I didn't say he's a rat. I heard that he was a rat. Uh, Winter Hill Gang. He was. These guys were were. Doug said he was a rat, not Drew. These the mob guys in Boston were scary people. Give you an example. I'm playing with Roger Pace and the Pacemakers. Well, we got to go talk to. Two minutes ago, we're supposed to meet Paul to talk before he leaves. Should we hold on to that pacemaker story for the next I'll one? Hold, I'll hold it on. Hold on. <laughs> hold something. Again, Doug Messenger is on Instagram. I appreciate you coming in, buddy. It's fun to do these, isn't it? it? You have a wealth fun. of knowledge. Yeah. A great memory, and you've been well, I like that you allow me to come in totally unprepared, because I think I do better that way. I don't script anything. I don't yeah. research. Yeah. I have four topics, and then we kind of just, I don't even tell you what they are, but it's fun to just have a conversation, because yeah. you don't know what you're going to remember also. you know, I don't want yeah. you to think apples and oranges and we talk bananas. Mm-hmm. So again, Doug has Doug Messenger Studio in North Hollywood. If you want a good studio to record at, I love that room. Um, Also, Doug Messenger's on Instagram, and you have your Google Business page up. Uh, We do have fifty Van Halen work order prints that are just so cool. They're at SunsetSoundStore.com. Use the discount code Doug for ten percent off. Final thoughts on anything? Anything we need to know? That you've thought of? That was a great Bill, Bill Church uh, story you told. Well, I think it's interesting to see that Ronnie Montrose and Bill Church, 
Ronnie Montrose and Bill Church were together for a while. And when Montrose Church left Montrose because Montrose wanted a different kind of not a rock band, which I think it was his mistake. Yeah. It would have been better to do what he tried to do at my studio in 2003. That was pretty good, even though I think between Ricky and the other guy and whoever else was involved, it lost the Montrose feeling. Yeah. And Ro point. Ronnie's had just done the, the, the basic rhythm tracks with Ricky and uh, Eric Singer. Uh, but that little video that you should go look at, it's on YouTube, and they're at some room. If, if you look at the little pictures on YouTube, there's it's a bar of some kind. And it's just they just have their amps sitting there on the floor, no stage. Ronnie, Danny McNay on guitar, on bass, Randy Scholes singing, and a blonde guy, stocky guy on drums, and they do a song. And there it's it's even just a little jam. But it, it's Montrose, man. You can feel that thing that Ronnie had. Yeah. But on the stuff that Eric Singer and Ricky Phillips did in my studio, they lost that feeling. When you hear Edgar Winter singing, Glenn Hughes singing, all these, Dave Menachetti, all these amazing guys singing, 10 different ones. And somehow, it, for me, it didn't add up. All right, Doug, I appreciate you coming on so Thank much. You. That's a roundtable. Yes.